you join us this morning on week four of a series that we are looking at on the Song of Songs. It's uh, an amazing book in the Bible that we've looked at can be read in three ways, and all three ways that we read it are right to do so. We read, we can read it as a love song between King Solomon, I'm going to call him the young man, and his lover, the young woman. And we can understand all sorts of things that will help our earthly relationships and issues of intimacy can be gleaned from reading it in this way. The second way we can read it is as a history, a story of God with his people, the Israelites. And there are many things that when you read it through this prism that you understand and make sense. And the third way that we can read it is that it's a love story of Christ and his church. Not just the worldwide church made up of all those wonderful denominations and mixes and backgrounds, but also you as his church, as his people. And what I'm about to look at this morning will apply to you. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're in a beautiful, wondrous, joy-filled marriage, or whether your marriage is a bit mundane, this is for you today. Whether you have been hurt by other relationships or whether you have been an instigator of hurt and hurt other people. No matter how you failed, no matter what your hopes and dreams, this is for you. I'm so glad that even though we can't change our future, God gives us a... We can't change our past, sorry. <laughs> Awful slip. That even though we can't change our past, that God makes it possible for us to know a new future yeah. in Him. So I'm going to take you to chapter 4 in week 4. And let's look at these first few verses together. You are beautiful, my darling. Beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves, like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth is matched with its twin. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Your breasts are like two fawns, two fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Some of you ladies are now discovering where your husband got the verses from, from his Valentine's card. <laughs> These compliments don't really translate brilliantly into what we'd understand as romantic words today. And in many ways, I don't want us to get stuck. There's great significance in the metaphors that are being um, spoken of here, and they're metaphors that would have particularly meant something tremendous in the day that they were written. But I don't want to get stuck too much on those metaphors. But I want you to notice that the attributes of her body that he is uh, mentioning, he has created a metaphor for, there's her eyes, 
her hair, her teeth, her lips, her temples, her neck, and her breast. That even in the display of all these metaphors, there are seven parts of her. Now, in the Bible, seven is the perfect number. And that even in his compliments to her, even in his expressions of desire, there is a sense of, you are perfect. You are perfect. And God doesn't just make us better. He perfects us. Now, as we don't get too much hung up on the imagery, I do want us to just notice that these weren't just casual phrases that came after a quick glance that the young man had with the young woman. But these were expressions of intense longing and desire. He didn't just notice her. He lingered and watched. He studied intently. He noticed every nuance, every detail about her life. And he was captivated. He lingers. His mind, as he begins to say these things, is intoxicated with the metaphor which captures the desire and passion of his heart. He looks with his eyes, he longs with his heart, and he speaks with his mouth. Can I ask you a really simple but central question for your life? How do you perceive the Lord is looking at you? When he studies you, is he disappointed in your understanding of his glances and his gaze? Does he feel awkward because he knows what's in your heart? Is there an embarrassment that God has? Is he waiting for an opportunity to bring to you the long list of your failures? I want you to understand that as he looks at his love, it's obvious that he loves her. It's obvious that he longs for her, desires her. This is not a contractual obligation as we've looked at it previous weeks. This is longing. Now, before you write this off as some soppy, sentimental, emotive way of approaching the love of God, I want to look at the depths of this context and this understanding of desire. I want us to go a bit deeper because desire is where this all flows from. The words that are being expressed are because there's a desire and a passion in the young man's heart for the young woman or for Christ and his church. He desires you. And you and I, we are united by a longing to be desired in our lives. We long to be desired. Not just loved, not just to be in a relationship, 
not just to be in proximity with other people, but we long to be desired. If you don't believe me, guys, imagine, those of you who are married, imagine on your wedding night, and she said yes, and you've celebrated, and if I can dare paint the imagery that she's now slowly slipping out of her wedding dress. And she looks at you and she says, you do know I only married you because I lost a bet with my mate. Wow. At that moment, you would not think, oh well, at least we're married. You want more than a marriage certificate. You want more than a covenantal promise to be faithful to each other. You want more than a living arrangement. You want more than bedroom activity. You want to be loved. You want to be desired. We all do. You know, the biggest cause of adultery is not captivated by physical beauty. The biggest cause of adultery is when desire diminishes in a relationship and someone flutters their eyelashes and gives the impression that you are desired by them. Married couples, they stop lingering with their, with their desire and their glance. They stop seeing each other. They stop being captivated by the beauty in the soul. Suddenly there are just two bodies that just pass. They may even utter parrot-like fashion phrases such as I love you, but they stop seeing one another. They stop seeing the depths of the soul. And their desire diminishes. Desire is very powerful. It's more powerful than sex. In fact, intimacy is not sex. Intimacy can be expressed in lovemaking, but it is far more than that. It is a deep connection of soul. It's seeing beyond the surface of another person. It's seeing into the depths of their soul and sinking into desires, passionate and compelling embrace. I don't think I've ever met a couple that have put a date in their diary that says from this date, we're going to stop desiring each other. It just sort of happens. Maybe it's their busyness. Maybe it's the career demands. Maybe it's the financial pressures. Maybe it's that constant sense of living with jet lag-like feelings when kids come along. But our feelings of desire which we once held on to so tightly in our relationship, begins to float away like a silent balloon. And when we stop desiring our husband or wife, we become vulnerable. Those affections, those compliments of 
my husband doesn't understand me like you do. That those phrases begin to put a bit of wood on that spark of desire that's latent inside and it begins to build a flame of passion. And we find ourselves and our thoughts and our desires wandering. Desire begins to pull us away. But some people get confused by novelty and desire. Because the novelty of a reawakened desire in us can seduce us from the inside out. But I want you to look into my eyes right now. And I want you to hear a pastor saying something as clear as I possibly can. It's a trap. Hear that? It's a trap. The writer of Song of Song Solomon, he also wrote what we would call the Proverbs. In chapter 7, verse 15, it starts off sounding like it's a good relationship, but let me just, because it sounds like there's desire here, but let me just read it to you. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink deeply of love until morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home, he has gone on a long journey. If we skip forward a few verses to verse 25, it says this, do not let your hearts stray away toward her or him. Don't wander down her wayward path. If the fire's gone, if you're functioning as a relationship, but the passion has died, I want to encourage you to look at your husband. Look at your wife. Look at the beauty and the wonder of who God has made them. Stop getting diverted by all the things that annoy you. Who cares the toothpaste is always squeezed on the top? Who cares that the toilet seat is left up? Who cares? Look at the depths of their soul and see the wonders of who they are. Look, see, and tell them. As you do that, there is still a flame that as you add the fire, the wood, the fire begins to burn. And the flames of passion can be captured again. If we look on in Song of Songs 4, verse 12 to 15 now, it says, You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, henna and nard, Nard and saffron, fragrant calamus and cinnamon, 
with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, and every other lovely spice. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountains. This locked garden is a beautiful, powerful image of both our spirituality and our sexuality. So much of it is captured so beautifully in this picture of a private walled garden. And within its walls, there is something so special, so precious, so unique and wonderful. In fact, the plants that were mentioned in this story, they, it was almost impossible that this could have existed because the plants would have been drawn from various continents. And of course, when this was written, they didn't have greenhouses or they could heat and bring false climates in to try and coax these plants to grow in an alien environment. But this garden, this private garden, this wondrous garden was full of Miracles and wonder and amazing things. This was exotic. This was like a sensory overload environment. Its sights, its sounds, its aromas, the mystery would have captivated the young man's senses and put them into overload. It really was like a botanical Viagra. I'll just let you get that laugh out of your system. These gardens were locked away and reserved for special people. Within its walls, pleasure ran riot. And this is a metaphor, as I said, of our spirituality and our sexuality. God designed pleasure. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. Now, we live in a world that is obsessed with sex. Obsessed. It's everywhere. Sex that can dehumanize. Sex that erodes the value of people. Sex that lowers what it means to be in love. Sex that has been lowered to a common denominator about just two bodies coming together. And as a result, we have a society filled with people who feel cheapened, exposed, vulnerable, and taken advantage of. But here we see desire and longing is intertwined with sexuality. And what results is not sex. It is rich, it is passionate, it is two souls mingling in union, safe in the value of faithfulness and fidelity. Two lives adding to each other, not taken away. In this sex-obsessed world that we have today, not only has the garden been trampled, not only have there been people who've crossed over the walls, but the walls have been kicked down and the value has gone. Is it any wonder 
that we've got a confused world today. Is it any wonder that in our world, people feel they're worth very little? And he says, Make, keep your garden, or there's a spring, there's a fountain for your garden. Make sure that your secluded spring, your hidden fountain, is flowing. I love meeting together like this, isn't it? Great just to enjoy worship and meet together and encounter the presence of God. But there is a maturity that God is bringing on his bride. And the maturity that he's bringing is about you and I knowing that there's a fountain in the garden of our lives. You see, for so long, and I think the pandemic has exposed this, people have lived according to the rain. Services, they bring their bottles to church, catch the rain, take it home, they'll have a swig for a few days, and it'll keep them going. But it's like if the rain doesn't come, and over the pandemic, for some of you, the rain hasn't come. And you're dry, and you're barren. But I want to tell you, there are other people here. You've been digging during the pandemic. You found a spring, and a fountain, and a well. And you're more well watered than you've ever been in your life. Because there's a spring in your garden. Thank God for the rains, and we'll pray that the rains of revival fall again upon our nation. We pray that the rains of revival will bring an awakening of the Lord in our communities. But you have a well. Do you remember Jesus met the woman at the well? Do you remember as he began to talk to her about her life? Do you remember some of the things she shared about her life? Do you remember that she'd been through multiple relationships? Do you remember that in that quest, in the, that journey, we're not given the conditions and the reasons why some of those relationships broke down, but the person she now was living with was, wasn't her husband. And there was a shame that she carried in her life. She was at the well at a time of day that she shouldn't have been at the well because she was avoiding people, because her garden had been trampled over. Her garden had been ransacked. The value had been taken from her life. And here she was with this metaphor of drawing water shrouded in shame that when she drinks it, she will be thirsty again. And Jesus spoke to her and said, I will give you water where you will never thirst again. Never, ever thirst again. This fountain, this living water of the Spirit, it comes to ensure that your garden is well watered, that it's vibrant and abundant in fruitfulness. You don't become an effective disciple, a fruitful disciple of Jesus by just hanging out with church, by attending courses, by joining a life group. Those things, they're not bad and they can help. But you become a fruitful disciple of Jesus by falling in love with Jesus and digging that well in your life and knowing the Spirit of the Lord at work in the garden of your soul. That's when fruitfulness grows. It's found in Jesus. 
can connect directly with him. John 3, 7, 38. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Rivers, not streams, not showers, not trickles, but rivers of living water, an artesian well. Now when you're digging for water, there's different crusts of rock that you have to break through, different hardness of earth, and some of you have hit some strong stones, and you think, I don't know if I can get through this. But as we keep pressing in in prayer, as we keep seeking God, as we keep fasting, as we keep diligent with his word, it breaks into the crust. And the artesian gush of the spirit breaks out in our lives. When you walk around the garden of your life, your priority is to check that the water is still flowing. If it isn't, your priority is to find the water. But I want to talk a little bit more about this garden because there are, if any of you have experience in a garden, you know that there's a constant battle in your gardens with weeds. Of course, mankind's story begins in a garden. And we see this beautiful, perfect environment where they walk in the cool of the day with God. Adam and Eve. And we read a sin came in. So the land had to be worked in a way that it wasn't previous. And the garden of your soul is a place of pleasure and a place of delight with Christ. But as sin, just as sin entered the garden of Eden, sin longs to enter into the garden of your soul. And to spoil it. To destroy it. To corrode it, to overtake it. But the good news is this no matter how messed up your garden is, Christ makes it beautiful again. Hallelujah. You are very beautiful. It is so obvious that you are loved. But we often try to grow things in our gardens, and sometimes we recognize that weeds and flowers can't coexist comfortably together. You know, in the Victorian times, there was a bit of a fashion to travel the world and to find all sorts of exotic things that could be brought back to the UK. And there was one plant that, because it had a, an unusual large leaf and a wonderful sort of blossom and bloom, it became a really fashionable item. The wealthy Victorians craved after it. It was such a fashion high point. And they display it and they put it in their gardens. That exotic plant was called, is called Japanese knotweed. If you buy a house today and a surveyor says to you that Japanese knotweed is in the grounds of your home, you have a problem. A fashion item can now it's understood, eat through the concrete of your foundations and destroy your house. There are fashions of this world that look colorful and attractive, but they will destroy you. 
And God is bigger than any knotweed. They can't coexist together. Weeds cannot be tamed. They will, if allowed, destroy the beauty of your garden. And I'm going to flick you back a couple of chapters in Song of Songs just to pull out one verse. And the verse is this. Catch all the little foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. For the grapevines are blossoming, young woman. They're blossoming. And I have seen a picture in my mind's eye of the enemy of your soul releasing the foxes and saying, go get the church. Go and kill their vineyards. Go and destroy their fruitfulness. Go and mess up their lives. And the enemy has ordered them to run riot over your garden, to destroy your vines. Now, there are many varieties of the foxes. But in these final moments, I want to expose a particular fox that's running rampant in our society and it's running rampant in the church. And I want to bring this to us because God has given us the tools and the power and the authority to shoot the damn foxes. For these next few moments, I want to talk about pornography as a fox that is running rampant, not just among men, not just among young people, but young, old, men, women. The foxes have been released, and no matter how fashionable they are on daytime talk shows, no matter how much people display it boldly and fashionably like some Japanese knotweed on their windowsill, it will destroy you. Let's look at pornography. I'm going to look, let's not look at pornography. <laughs> Do not edit that. I know you know what I meant, but people can take these snippets online, they can chop them, and now that's out there. Broke the tension though, didn't it, for a moment. Let's look at some things that pornography does, a much better phraseology. First of all, pornography can create an emotional bond with fictitious fantasy. People create bonds with all emotional bonds with all sorts of things, don't they? One of um, the programs Nita and I enjoy is a program called The Repair Room. And people bring along some items from their home, from being passed down the generations, and they're broken, they're tarnished, they're scruffy, they have certainly had their best days behind them, they're normally broken. And they take them to the repair shop, and it's not just like them dropping off an item to be repaired. There's usually tears attached with the journey of dropping it off with the experts. And the tears are because 
this chair that the springs are gone and the upholstery just looks awful was the chair that their grandfather sat in. And so these experts work on bringing something back to its former glory. And when the people come and the cloth is lifted off, they don't say, oh, great, they've got a chair. They weep. Because there's an emotional bond with this item. And we have a propensity to be able to make emotional bonds with all sorts of things, even fictitious things, even fantasies. We have a critical need for human intimacy in our lives and, and emotional connection. But when someone views pornography, they end up creating an intimate bond with an artificial fake world that can actually cause them to lose the ability to bond with real people. Secondly, this fox of porn, it creates sex without intimacy. Pornography is sex without that very central thing that we've looked at today of longing and desire. It has no emotional closeness. It has no faithfulness. It has no union. And therefore, the underlying hunger remains. It is like the woman going to the well. It is like her trying out all these relationships and never being satisfied. Sex without intimacy never satisfies. Thirdly, and following this theme of it not satisfying, underneath most pornographic use is some form of dysfunctional mood management. Pornography provides two things. It provides exciting pleasure and it provides soothing calm. And both of these can be used to relieve or distract a person from stressful feelings, from boredom, from depression, from self-hate, from fears, from loneliness, etc. Using pornography to feel pleasure and escape negative feelings creates a gateway for addiction because you train your brain to feel soothed. Fourthly, this triggers of addiction that cycle in the brain Studies show that actual brain function changes in someone who has an addiction, whatever the addiction is. And the changes are the same in all addictions, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or pornography. Because pornography and its use can become an actual addiction, viewers are not able to stop through their own willpower alone. Fifthly, Pornography creates isolation. Initially, you might have been attracted to pornography because of the positive things that it did for you and the feelings it gave. People have said things like, I loved the rush it made me feel, or it became something that helped with my loneliness. Some even see it as a reward for going through a difficult day. But eventually, these people who make these positive comments, eventually they begin to say things like, I no longer feel an emotional response to anything. There's nothing in my life that I enjoy doing now. I feel totally isolated from the world. And maybe even say, my anxiety and my stress levels are at an all-time high. Six, 
It magnifies past wounds. It doesn't heal them. In the long run, pornography will not shore up your shaky ego. It will not fill the emptiness left from your childhood. It will not help with your feelings of abandonment. It will not save a, a shaky relationship or a failing marriage. And it will not satisfy. In fact, it will magnify each emotional wound that you have from the past. And it will damage your ability to have healthy relationships in the present and the future. But in the garden, as these foxes are released, one of its main objectives is to cut us off from God. We exchange the best for a temporary pleasure. In Hebrews 12, we read the writer capturing a well-known story from the book of Genesis where two sibling rivalries of Esau and Jacob, Esau being the oldest, entitled to his father's blessing, he returned one day hungry. His stomach was rumbling. He needed nourishment. He wanted food. And he could smell food that has been cooked. And he promises his brother that if he will give him some of his soup, his stew, then he will forfeit his blessing. Hebrews 12, 16 says, Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn, son for a single meal. Church, don't give up your inheritance. Don't surrender the vine for a cute-looking fox. Shoot the damn fox. If you see the traits of addictive behaviors and a cycle in your life, then you will need not just to shoot the fox, but you'll need to repair the walls of your garden. And you will benefit from help. Find a trusted Christian friend. Confess your need to them. And ask them to pray with you. Oh, everything in you will not want to do this. It's vulnerable. But it's healing. In the book of James, it says, confess your sins one to another. So that what? So you may be healed. Ask a Christian friend to pray with you. Ask them to check in with you with difficult questions to see how you're doing. There are some good resources out there. There's a number of people in the church that have connected together to provide support and help to make sure these foxes are not part of their garden. And many of them will use a resource. Um, there's a website, www.strive21.com. There are some cards actually available just in front of the sound desk at the back. You can pick up those little business cards it's not going to be a massive book for you to carry out so everybody knows you're carrying just a discreet little business card and it will give you some pointers to some tools that will help you, female or male. No garden is too overgrown 
or too messed up to be irredeemable. Do you remember Jesus looks in your garden and he says, how beautiful you are. He looks at you lovingly. John 3.17 says he does, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. He doesn't walk into your garden and say, I can't believe you let it get to this state. He brings his tools. He brings his gun. <laughs> and I tell you, He's got more power than any weed, any fox. It doesn't matter how deep those weeds go. It doesn't matter how long those roots have been in your life. He breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoner free. Free. And he provides the springs of living water. Where there was death, and dissatisfaction, he brings life and joy and peace. He burns with desire for you. As hard as that might be for you to understand and hear, it's true. He burns with desire for you, and anything less of our understanding of that is a lie. You'll never find love like the love you find in Christ. You will never know joy like the joy you find in Christ. Don't exchange this love. Don't exchange this incomparable richness of his mercy for a bowl of blooming soup. Maybe the band could join me on the stage. Isaiah 43 verse 19, a well-known scripture. Says these words, for I am about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness, through the wilds, through the weed strewn pathways. I will make a pathway. I will create rivers in those dry, parched lands. He will do it if we will allow our lives to open like a flower and say, I receive it. Let's all stand together. It's obvious that he loves you. And it's obvious that he's come among us, the lover of our souls, comes to bring freedom, life. And if you would like this morning to re-consecrate the garden of your life to the Lord, just to give it to him, oh, I promise you, he will bring transformation if you do this. 
He will give you strategies to repair the walls and to shoot the foxes and to pull up the Japanese knotweed. He will give you strategies to break the power of everything that wants to destroy the vine of your love and the fruitfulness of your life. But if you want to reconsecrate your life, and I'm doing this this morning, then just raise your hands to heaven. Say, as, as my hands are open, as my arms are lifted, it's a symbol of my heart opening, unfurling. The hardness, the resistance, the self-rejection, the hiding in a tree out of shame, that we come out from those things and we open, we unfurl our hearts, we soften our hearts and our lives before you and we say, come, lover of our souls, come and bring fresh life, bring redemptive hope, bring, oh God, deep healing in our hearts. I am my beloved's and he is mine and his banner is 